Hi, I'm Ollie. And I'm Kendall. And this is The Group Project. Hello, everyone. We're here talking today with Dylan Tomina, who is a fly fishing ambassador for Patagonia and a producer of the film Artificial. Hello, Dylan. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we like to start with uh, a little bit of backstory. So if you can kind of give us uh, a picture of um, who you are and where you come from and what kind of got you on the path uh, where you are today. Um, well, with regards to the film, it, it's kind of a joke that it's the uh, the overnight film <laughs> that was 18 years in the making. <laughs> uh, I, I can... I can start with that. You know, um, the idea for the film was really slowly evolving, but uh, it started uh, back in 2001 when, um, you know, most of all, I'm a fisherman uh, Mm -hmm. in your description of me. And uh, I am, uh, I was not a person that ever really thought about conservation. Like I didn't want to be a conservationist. It didn't really even occur to me. But that changed really rapidly in 2001 when my uh, my home river, the Skykomish River in Washington State, uh, was closed for the spring wild steelhead catch and release season, which I had built my entire year around uh, to be able to participate in that. And so uh, it was closed because there weren't enough fish coming back and the state felt that, you know, even something as low impact as fly fishing catch and release that uh, it could damage the last of the wild fish that were there. And up to that very moment when that announcement was made, nothing about conservation had ever even occurred to me. So um, that was really the wake-up call. That was like the the punch in the stomach. And I suddenly had a whole bunch more time on my hands uh, because the fishery wasn't going to be open. And so I, I kind of just dug into a research project of trying to find out how this could be. Cause you know, there's probably a lot of the listeners will understand this, that nothing really motivates you until something that you love is taken away. And uh, that was, that was the impetus for me. And so what I discovered was, was about the real powerful negative impact that these fish hatcheries have on wild fish populations. And so I, as a, I'm a writer by trade, so I had written, I wrote a number of uh, magazine stories, mostly for fishing to try and get the word out that, hey, we might be destroying the thing we think we're protecting, you know, um, because I think like, like most people up until that point, I had considered fish hatcheries to be a positive thing. Like, you know, if there's some fish in the river and you add more fish to the river, then there's more fish for us to catch. And um, it hadn't occurred to me that there could be some kind of problem with that. Oh, well, so at that point, I kind of just started doing a lot of research, started publishing stories in magazines about it, and nothing really came of it. <laughs> I think, you know, either people ignored it or I wasn't as convincing a writer as I thought I was. Or, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what it was, but nothing really came of it except for there was some negative backlash um, from people who really liked the fact that there were hatcheries there to provide fish for them to catch. So, um, so I felt like I wasn't really making a dent. And at that point I put together this talk called the high cost of hatcheries. And that talk really traced, um, the financial implications of the hatchery program, how much taxpayer money was being wasted. Uh, and then also the ecological cost, 
and the cultural cost of what we were doing with these sort of, you know, engineered fish that we were putting into the rivers. And so I started traveling around on the West Coast giving this talk, and it ended up where the same thing kind of happened. I would I would go to a talk. <laughs> I did one in more Washington. There were three people showed up. <laughs> so I, uh, what I found out is I was preaching to the choir, and the choir was often very, very, very small. <laughs> and... Um, and that it getting any kind of impact the way I wanted it to. And I know, Molly, you had talked about feeling discouraged. I was feeling really discouraged at that point. And kind of in a, a, a real uh, serendipitous uh, convergence of things happening, at the same time I was um, peripherally involved in the film Damnation that Patagonia made. And in doing some of those events and participating in the film process, I really had my eyes open to the power on an emotional level and a reach level of what a film can do uh, for conservation efforts, and particularly a film that Patagonia does because of the amount of public relations and outreach and communications and support that they give to these films, um, very much more impact than just a regular film. So, you know, the wheels started turning in my head and, uh, I think it was about five years ago now they had, uh, they invited all the Patagonia ambassadors from all the different sports to come to Ventura and spend a few days just talking about various issues, how they could support us, how we could support them, et cetera. And at the end of this whole three day Lollapalooza, um, the final question was they asked us each to uh, say what Patagonia could do to help us with our individual conservation efforts. And, you know, so people wanted, you know, some funding to put signs up to protect the native beach grasses, at, you know, at a place that they surfed. Or, um, you know, there was a lot of these kind of small scale, really important grassroots kind of requests going on. And when it came to me, I asked for $200,000 <laughs> and the Malloy's <laughs> to make a film. And the room got real quiet, and somebody patted me on the back and said, yeah, that's nice, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that was going to be about it. Um, Either that or they were going to fire me for being an ass and asking (laughs) for things way up grade. Um, But interestingly, uh, surprisingly to me really, is a couple months later I was fishing with, uh, with Yvonne Chouinard, who's the owner of Patagonia and founder of Patagonia. And and he brought it up. He said, so I heard you want to make a film about fish hatcheries. And I said, wow, yeah, I do. I think it's really important, and I don't know how else to reach people. Um, and he said something like, boy, that's going to be really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and then he thought about it, and he said, he said okay, well, I'll give you $20,000 and a camera, and you can just go make this film on the beach down at the river by your house with, with your kids. so um you know obviously here we are now five years later we've been in production with artificial for the better part of three years and um you know yvonne if anything is really really committed to making positive change on this planet and um you know the new the new patagonia mission statement is we're in business to save our home planet and um and he's a man of his word and so um but better than that instead of getting the 20 grand and a camera 
Um, he approved uh, a pretty significant budget. Uh, we went out and found, you know, we looked at a bunch of filmmakers and found a filmmaker in Josh Murphy uh, who could direct it and, and shared our sensibility about what we were trying to do. Um, and out of that has come, you know, the film is kind of, uh, I would say it's, it's not a small piece, but it's, it's the centerpiece of a much bigger Patagonia initiative and campaign around hatcheries and fish farms um, that involves, you know, public outreach, um, editorial work, support in their catalogs, support online, uh, and then a whole kind of um, behind-the-curtains lobbying effort that goes with it. And uh, so it's really, really gratifying to be here now and feel like we're actually doing something that can at least start to change the conversation. So we have a few questions about things. Um, we had the opportunity to see the movie, which is how we met you. But um, I have a question before we dive into those things. How did making the movie change you, if it did at all, or affect you? Uh, the, the old story arc, how does the character change? Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, I, I learned that making a documentary film is incredibly difficult. <laughs> and frustrating. Um, you know, the collaborative effort is something that uh, is really a, a new thing to me as far as um, being a writer. You know, usually I'm sitting at my desk making decisions about what word to use in a certain place or whatever, and it's kind of a unilateral process. Uh, and, you know, I always think that when you work in collaboration, if you know, there's three outcomes, right? You, there's only three possibilities when you when you work with a team. And one is, I mean, this is assuming that you're working on a project that started out as your idea. There's only three outcomes. And the first one is that you work with a bunch of people and you get something that turns out to be less than what you were expecting or hoping. Um, you know, the middle option is that it, you get exactly what you were thinking or expecting. And the third option that everybody's going for is that you get something much better than you could have done on your own. And I, I think that's the case. And the learning process for me about how that works. Um, you know, I've been uh, involved with a number of other conservation films, including Damnation, uh, and another one called Chrome that was about climate change. Um, but this was the first time that I was really in it up to my eyeballs. And um, so I think, you know, the changes for me personally was to see what happens when a team comes together and and it being a patagonia production the team was really large there were there's lots of people continuing to uh from the environmental department from the marketing department from public relations from web design you know hat and t-shirt design posters all that stuff and and the biggest change to me is i was probably skeptical of how that could all come together and and now that it's done and I can see what was created by this team. I feel really um, like my skepticism or my my inherent pessimism was was uh, was put to rest. And then in the movie, um, you and you spoke about it a little bit here. Um, you talk about the taxpayers spending money to distribute fish so that people have something to catch. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Some of the numbers around that were really shocking to see. Yeah, sure. That's it. That's 
you know, I think when the general public, well, the general public probably never thinks about fish hatcheries at all. (laughs) And if they do, they probably see them as, as something positive, that this is a way to provide more fish for, you know, people and creatures and whatever. Um, but the fact is, is that it's a system that, you know, as we discovered with all the research that we did on this film and, you know, we looked at, I got a stack of scientific papers on my desk that's about three feet high right now. So, um, a lot of what we learned was on the financial side and, um, you know, on the ecological side, it's pretty clear from science that, um, you know, and I'm talking about peer reviewed scientific journal published science that shows that uh, the presence of hatchery fish is a powerful detriment to wild fish. And, you know, here we are in the Pacific Northwest spending millions of dollars a year or billions of dollars a year, really um, trying to recover our salmon populations. And it turns out that a large part of that money is being on being spent on something that not only doesn't work, um, but does the opposite of what it was intended Um, which means it's worse than wasting our taxpayer dollars. And, you know, the numbers are pretty staggering. Um, You know, there have been a number of calculations done on the Columbia system alone, where we taxpayers and electric ratepayers are spending uh, around $2 billion a year to mitigate for the dams as far as environmental impact that they have. Um, A large chunk of that is directly goes to funding hatcheries. Uh, And the hatcheries themselves are very inefficient because of uh, domestication and inbreeding. The fish come back in fewer and fewer numbers each year uh, from these hatcheries. And the solution, the only solution that we've ever tried is to keep adding more. So you're doing more of what doesn't work and you're piling it on and piling it on. And the result is sort of this exponential growth in cost. And, you know, for example, oh, go ahead. Can you explain a little bit, um, just, you know, we, you talked about like not the general public doesn't really think about fish hatcheries. Can you explain the difference between uh, a wild fish and a hatchery fish and, and what kind of, whether that's a genetic difference or, or, you know, how could one, one tell the difference? Yeah, I I think that's a good idea. That makes, it'll help the financial discussion make more sense. Um, you know, the easy way to tell them apart, uh, here on the west coast is that most of our hatchery fish are marked by removing their adipose fin which is a little vestigial fin above the tail uh, on the top of the fish okay and so you know the easy way to tell if you're if you've caught a fish or you're looking at a fish in the market is if the adipose fin is missing it came from a hatchery Um, that's not a hundred percent there are some hatcheries that are releasing fish without the adipose mark Um, but that's an easy kind of sign of or way to tell right away Um, the biological difference or the evolutionary difference is really staggering that um, you know in the wild you have only the very fittest fish survive to spawn and that's you know two three or four years out in the ocean it's um, a return up sometimes 900 miles upstream in a river without eating once they enter fresh water the salmon don't feed and so um the very very fittest make it to the spawning grounds and then when they lay their eggs only the very fittest eggs hatch and then only the very fittest of those can actually work their way out of the gravel as young fish and at each step of the 
of the process of the life history or growth of a salmon, uh, you have all this uh, environmental pressure or evolutionary pressure that reduces the number so that when they return to spawn, you only have the very, very strongest, most absolutely fit fish for that watershed. Mm -hmm. Each watershed uh, evolves its own specific fish in size and, and genetic makeup to fit that specific watershed. And the exact opposite happens with hatchery fish. In hatchery fish, um, the fish are spawned and the eggs are hand-delivered to perfectly aerated, temperature-controlled trays. So, you know, instead of having 100 fish out of, you know, let's just say, for example, that uh, a typical female has 5,000 eggs. Or, yeah, let's just say 5,000 eggs. You know, maybe only... Um, you know, a few hundred survive to hatch, and then, you know, a smaller percentage of that survives to be small fish and on and on. In the hatchery, at each step, their survival rate is almost 100%. So you have um, lots of fish with genetic traits that are not supposed to survive, surviving at each step. And so what you end up is with a very different animal. You are basically creating a domesticated strain of a wild fish. And I think of it a lot like the difference between uh, wolves and dogs, that, you know, they share a common ancestor, but one has been bred and bred and bred to be able to be a companion animal, and the other one has been bred and bred and bred to deal with the forces of nature. Yeah. Um, so I, that's kind of the basic difference of what makes a hatchery fish or a wild fish. Cool. That's super helpful. Thank you. Um, so, you know, to get back to the financial thing, uh, in the course of, of my research on this, you know, we found examples of fish like their, the Spring Chinook program on the Eniot River in Washington State. It's an Upper Columbia tributary. But they were producing adult Spring Chinook that cost $68,031, $68,031 per harvested adult. Oh so goodness. that means, yeah, you're paying $70,000 <laughs> to produce a fish that actually fulfills its mission, which is to be caught by a commercial tribal or, or sport fisherman. And, you know, if you look at the commercial side of that alone, you know, let's say that fish weighed 10 pounds, Let's say a commercial fisherman caught it in the lower Columbia River, and let's say that he got $8 a pound for it. So that is, um, you know, an $80 value for that fisherman. And we spent, all the rest of us spent 70000 bucks so that he could get his 80 bucks. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to me, that's like, that's like this hidden subsidy of a, you know, it's staggering. Um and, and I think it's grounds for, for outrage among voters, people who use electricity, people who pay their taxes. Um, you know, spending $70,000 for a single fish is outrageous, but it's even worse knowing that the presence of that, uh, that $70,000 fish was actually preventing the wild fish, which cost us nothing and are free, uh, from recovering to the point where we could have a sustainable harvest of, of those fish. Um, so in that way, hatcheries become this sort of self-fulfilling industry in that, 
by putting out hatchery fish, you keep the wild fish from recovering, which then means you need more hatchery fish to fulfill your obligations to the tribes or to commercial fishermen or to sport fishermen. And it goes in this vicious cycle. And the vicious cycle actually trends towards zero for all cold water fish. Um, I, if I can explain that, let, let me see if I yeah. can. So um, we know that in the presence of hatchery fish, wild fish trend towards zero because of, um, of competition and increased predation. You know, when we release hatchery fish, we, we release them in these unnaturally high um, giant schools of fish that are all dumped on one day, which brings in a, a naturally high level of predation. And the wild fish get picked off in that process. Uh, we know they compete for food and habitat um, during an ex- extremes of weather. Uh, and we know that uh, on the spawning grounds that uh, a wild hatchery mixed interbred pair. So if a wild fish spawns with a hatchery fish, it reduces the offspring viability by 50% just in the first generation. Wow. So when you put, so that's back to my point, that was kind of a long digression, but uh, in the presence of hatchery fish, wild fish trend towards zero because of all these damaging effects at every stage of their life history. And then uh, at the same time, hatchery fish, because they're continually more and more uh, inbred and domesticated, uh, they stop being able to survive out in their outward journey and in the ocean and and the ability to return gets diminished over time. So usually the fish hatcheries have to go out and get wild genetics and add them into the hatchery genetics every few generations just to keep them able to survive at all. And so if the hatchery fish drive the wild fish to extinction and you need wild fish to keep the hatchery fish from going to extinction, you see that that cycle, that circle ends up in extinction, period. One of the big kind of themes throughout the movie seemed to be that there's been this like prevalent idea that um, wild fish need humans to intervene um, because we've intervened in the system already. So it needs us to like intervene more to try to save them. Um, and one of the things that seems to be that the, one of the stories that movie seems to be telling is that it's actually the more that we step back that these wild fish um, start to recover themselves, that they don't need us to save them, that they actually need us to step back so that they can save themselves. Is that, would you, does that sound right? Or did I miss a big point there? (laughs) No, no, you're exactly right. I'm happy that that's what you took away from the film. Um, You know, we found in places like, um, like after the Mount St. Helens eruption, when the Toodle River was destroyed by, you know, thousand degree pyroclastic mud flows and completely devegetated, um, that the state looked at that and said, wow, that can't support fish. We're going to cancel the hatchery program. And within six years or seven years, there were more wild winter steelheads spawning in the Toodle River. Uh, than in any other lower Columbia watershed, all of which had heavy hatchery plants. And then just to prove the point, once they saw the wild fish recovering, the state decided to start planting hatchery fish back in the Toodle River, and the fish, uh, the wild fish population crashed. Um, so yeah, it's really clear that because of 
what we were just talking about, the genetic fitness and the diversity of, of life histories and diversity of genetics, that wild fish are, are far more capable of surviving and even thriving in really compromised habitat uh, than hatchery fish are. And so to me, that says, you know, if you're dealing with, um, you know, habitat that's been damaged uh, or any of the problems, these man, man-made problems that we've created, it's really uh, disadvantageous for us to think that we can fix it with hatcheries because the inevitable result of that, as, as we saw over long term, is, is a trend toward extinction. So, um, yeah, I mean, Bill McMillan says in the film, we just need to get out of their way. And um, I think that's really true. So kind of to that point there, if we are wanting to move away from hatchery fish and back to native population, is there a way to transition to that? Or um, like, how do you envision that, that situation resolving itself? And I know that that's obviously like a super complex question involving a lot of different components and stakeholders, but um, is is that even like a feasible possibility, or or what might look what might that look like? It, it's actually super simple. We just stop planting hatchery fish. <laughs> <laughs> Would there be any uh, repercussions? Like um, I know you mentioned yeah. tribal stuff and um, like tribal concerns and commercial concerns, like like we couldn't just like pull the plug on the hatchery program, like from a like broader viability picture, like that would obviously help the native fish population, but there would be problems in other areas, right? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I want to be clear that the goal, you know, the goal of this film is not conservation for conservation's sake. Like, you know, and I've said this before, it's not, like the black-footed ferret or saving the snail darter or saving <laughs> spotted owl. Right. This is a, this is a, a very selfish, um, selfish endeavor for me. Um, and for the, the people, you know, Patagonia is a, a company of fishermen. And so we're doing this really um, because we see wild fish as the only path to an abundance that's actually sustainably harvestable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we're not trying to save wild salmon just because they're really cool creatures and should be out there. We're trying to save wild salmon and steelhead and trout so that there's healthy populations that we can fish for and harvest and eat. Um, and in the case of commercial fishermen sell. Um, and so, yeah, I think it is complicated uh, because we as a society have become addicted to this, you know, what I would consider a pretty arrogant concept that we can just, do something better than mother nature. And, and so, yeah, politically it's very fraught. There are large numbers of stakeholder groups that, that believe that hatcheries are the only way they get harvestable numbers of fish. And so, yeah, there, there's a lot of work that would need to be done. I think, you know, the science is showing us now that, that that's not really true, that because of wild fish's ability to adapt even to, to very poor environmental conditions that, um, you know, we could have the same number or more um, or significantly more fish than we have today without the hatchery program. 
Um, but as far as the politics, yes. Um, you know, with the Bolt decision here in Washington, uh, the tribes are uh, entitled to 50% of the harvestable number of fish. And um, as co-managers with the state, uh, are very um, adamant that that they need the hatcheries to provide that harvestable number of fish. Um, so, you know, I think the solution is, is there actually is, I mean, I was joking earlier, but I think there really is um, a simple, a fairly simple solution as far as what you could do. I don't, the politics around it is much more challenging. Right. Um, but what I would like to see happen is, is that, you know, we would start with the lowest hanging fruit, the deadbeat hatcheries that are costing taxpayers the most and producing the least. Um, but I would like to, you know, there's so much federal funding and state funding that pays for these hatcheries. I would like to keep that all in place, but that people who work at hatcheries, instead of going to work every day and incubating eggs in aerated trays, um, would use that money for habitat restoration because clearly the better the habitat, the the quicker we'll see those sustainable rebounds. So um, if we could keep the funding in place and transition it from raising hatchery fish to fixing uh, habitat, you know, I think we'd have the double whammy. And, and you know, based on the, the anecdotal evidence, the few places that we've taken hatcheries out uh, the rebounds have been remarkable. And I, you know, I think there's a really good chance that in a number of these watersheds, we would much quicker than people would expect see um, more fish than anybody alive today has seen in those rivers. Right. Uh, well, what are, so, you know, removing dams and removing hatcheries, like they do provide jobs. Like, so the idea would be to remove some of these dams or all of the dams and, you know, transition the hatcheries to rehabilitation of the natural environment. Would, what about the people who work there? Are there thoughts around it? Is there a conversation going around about, um, cause they still have families, you know, to provide for and are just even themselves. Like I can imagine that that would be the biggest threat, um, or one of the biggest threats that people would feel, um, when these ideas would be brought up, you know, just their own way of life, what yeah. they know. Um, I guess what, yeah, what conversation is happening around that? It, you know, I mean, it's a lot bigger than just the hatchery workers because, you know, hatcheries are relatively low employment uh, fish factories that, you know, there are not um, huge numbers of employees, which doesn't in any way diminish the importance of the loss of a job for even a single family. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think the idea with the, what I was just talking about, my kind of pie in the sky dream is that those people would remain employed. It's just the nature of the work they're doing would change from raising domestic fish to improving habitat for wild fish. Yeah. Um, that would be, you know, that's sort of the ideal situation. So the employment wouldn't change, but it's bigger than that in that you're talking about, you know, some period of time, where the numbers would clearly dip and there wouldn't be fishing opportunities. So there's sport fishing guides. There's a whole sport fishing equipment industry. There are uh, commercial fishermen. There's tribal fisheries. You know, all of those, everybody, all of us collectively would need to make some short-term sacrifice in order to ensure that there was a long-term opportunity. 
And so, yeah, I think we would really need to look at how do you how do you make up for that with the loss of, of short-term opportunity for harvest and financial gain from that? I think, you know, I think that's definitely an issue. At the same time, when you have such clear-cut science, um, you know, industries change. The What people do for a living changes over time and and kind of the old, you know, I have a right to do this because my daddy did it and his daddy did it and his daddy did it. Well, you know, despite our our current administration's uh, uh, words otherwise, you know, the coal industry is dying, right? I mean, people that work coal are going to have to find something else to do. And and that's permanent. I think with people who make their living from from fish on the West Coast, uh, I think it's a temporary or a shorter term um, hiatus from being able to do what they'd like to do. But the fact is, is we're evolving and changing and the industries are changing. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, I, I mentioned coal, but in a lot of ways, the fish hatchery issue is like a microcosm of, of climate change in that we have a mountain of scientific evidence that clearly demonstrates that, that climate change is real and that it's human caused. And yet you have a lot of our elected leadership who basically are calling it a hoax and because it's more politically expedient. And that's what's happening with hatcheries. There is a mountain of scientific evidence that shows how problematic they are and what a waste of taxpayer dollars they are. And yet, because it would be unpopular to close these hatcheries down, the, nobody in government you know, has the... Um, you know, I guess for lack of a kinder term, nobody has to actually go out and do this. And, and you know, it's a conundrum. I, I don't know what the answer is because in a democracy, well, let, let me put it this way. I think, you know, it's still the role of government to make unpopular decisions for the common good. Like, do you guys agree with that? I do. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, but the problem is in a democracy, you can't get reelected if you make unpopular decisions, yeah. you know? And so I, I don't know what the solution to that is. You know, I mean, you, the work we're doing is to try and change the popular opinion so that these decisions would be supported by voters. Right. Um, but until that happens, you know, and we're talking about a sea change on a topic that most people aren't even aware of. So until that happens, I don't know what the solution is for politicians um, even if they look at the science and believe in it, like I, you know, I would have a really hard time believing that the Republican Party does not acknowledge that that climate change is a real problem. Um, you know, and I think there are a number of politicians that understand the damage and the waste that's coming out of these hatchery programs. But if they make moves to curtail or reform or stop them, the hatcheries, um, it gets really difficult to get reelected, especially in districts that are affected by, by the industry of fishing. So, um, you know, I mean, what's the solution? I don't, you know, benevolent dictatorship. (laughs) 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 Well, one of the things I'm really interested in how just the mind works and how people relate, relate to each other and to themselves. And, um, just as you're speaking, one of the things that comes to my mind is like the fixed mind, flexible mind mindset. Have you heard of that before? 
No, I, I, I don't think so. Yeah. So a fixed mind is kind of like, this is the way it is. It's the way it's always going to be. You know, it's very, I mean, it's fixed. It's not changing. Um, and the flexible mind is one that's more, it's like more adaptable. Um, it's more open usually. And it's more, it's kind of like a mindset. Some people probably have it more naturally. Um, and But it's one you can develop as well by practicing it. But just this idea of, and it's, to be able to adapt and evolve. And it seems like a lot of people just culturally maybe um, have really locked into a fixed mindset with a lot of different things. And if we're going to make these changes, especially these huge changes, um, and I think it's just, I personally believe that it's like just a really great way to interact um, or engage in the world and in life is to have a more flexible mindset where it's just open to other people's ideas, open to conversation. And even like Kendall had um, took improv classes a while ago and they talk about like a yes and mindset, which is um, Mm -hmm. like you add on to what somebody else is saying instead of like fighting against it or shutting down. Like you kind of, um, it's a lot more collaborative, a lot more listening. And I just, I wonder if some of these kind of different ways that we could change the way we're all individually operating and approaching these different topics, um, it would some way take it out of just so combative because in that combative one, um, it is like fixed mind against fixed mind, where if we were more flexible, there's a lot more empathy in there, a lot more willingness to learn or be wrong in an area or understand where another person is coming from. And then you can... um, you know, come to solutions that really, I think, kind of like how you described the movie. It's better than what you could have done on your own. Anyways, I don't know, I guess, where I'm going with that. <laughs> but I think that's totally relevant. And I, you know, I think, you know, at the risk of getting too political here, I think, <laughs> you know, what you're describing is the exact difference between between conservative and liberal on the political spectrum in that, you know, the definition of conservative is to keep things the same. Right. And the definition of liberal or progressive is, is to seek positive change, right? And, and if you look through history, you know, on important social issues, the liberals or the, the flexible mind, or what, what, what's the term? Yeah, flexible, yep, mind. flexible mind. Yeah, so the liberals or the flexible mind have always been right. If you want things to stay the same, then you would still believe that, you know, women shouldn't be able to vote, that black people have to sit in a certain part of the bus, that, um, you know, more recently that that gay couples can't get married. Um, And then over time, those what seems really progressive and radical at the time become part of the culture and, and don't they're not as inflammatory and in fact become the norm like. I can't imagine, Molly, that you not being able to vote because you're a woman. Yeah. Um, at the time, that was considered, that was the flexible mind. That was the, the liberal point of view. And the conservative point of view was, no, we've never let women vote. Let's not let them vote now. Right. Uh, you know, and, and so I think that that does have a lot of application to the changes we're going through now, um, especially, I mean, especially in the face of, this climate change thing, which looms over all the decisions we're making now, um, and and the refusal of 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 our quote unquote leaders to sort of acknowledge 
and and take it on. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's completely relevant to the political discussion today, and and really important. You know, I do have hope though, <laughs> and the hope to on this scale. And we're getting kind of far away from the film here, but um, I have a 15 year old daughter, and in talking to her and her friends, um, I see a whole generation of soon to be voters that are really angry with my generation for having let them down on automatic weapons, on having let them down on dealing with climate change. And, you know, these kids are going to be voting in two, three, four, five years. And, you know, I don't know that, that the Republican party or that, that the NRA, for example, are really ready for the anger that's coming at the polls, um, you know, much sooner than you probably than they probably think. Right. Do you I mean, you mentioned I don't I think you mentioned it when you were speaking at the film, but just like your kids being involved um, just in the activism process of this. Um, is this like how do you talk about it with them? Or do they think, bring it well, up to you? <laughs> I, it, you know, it's some of both. I, I think, you know, the the piece in the film, you know, that my kids are, are a part of is that, um, you know, we're a salmon fishing family and know that the net pen salmon farms right around the island that we live on are are problematic, that they're damaging the wild the wild runs and kind of this whole resource that we all share. And so, um, you know, you'll see this in the film that, or you saw this in the film that, that we went out to be part of this protest and, you know, had some signs and kind of paraded in boats around this fish farm protesting it. And, and my kids felt really good about it, that this was something they could participate in that would have an impact on their future. And so I wanted them to be involved in that. And then the incredible thing was not purely because of that protest, but um, about eight months later, the Washington state legislature voted um, to phase out the fish farms in Puget Sound. And so, um, you know, we danced around and high five. <laughs> we felt like we won one. And, and the really amazing thing to me is like, you don't really realize you do these things and then they take hold of your kids in different ways. And um, several months after that, you know, in the wake of the Parkland shootings, there were these high school walkouts everywhere, um, um, protesting lack of gun control. And this is what I was talking about. The anger of these kids for their parents' generation failed them, failed to protect them yeah. in place should be safe. And so the local high school here staged their walkout. And um, one of the parents later showed me a video on her phone and there's my 15 year old daughter with a bullhorn standing on the little <laughs> the flag area, you know, um, shouting out about how angry they are. And, and I realized, you know, this is how activism comes about, right? Yeah. That you get a little exposure and if you're lucky, there's some kind of slam dunk success and then it takes hold, you know, and I'm convinced for the rest of her life that she will stand up for social or environmental injustices uh, in protest. And, and so that's one of the things like as a dad, like I'm super proud of, like I'm yeah. really proud of her. That was something that she feels like she can have an impact on the world she's growing up in. 
That's really beautiful. It's like it's 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 so hopeful for me. I mean, I, I like in spite of all the issues and problems and things we deal with, and and you know, I mean, the conservation advocacy game or activism game moves really slowly. You know, I mean, the Elwha dams probably took 35 or 40 years to actually take out from the beginning of the movement to have them removed. Things move at kind of a glacial pace. And, and with fish conservation, you know, as soon as you fix one thing, something else pops up and um, it, it can get discouraging and, and depressing. And so to be able to see that in, in kids that there's this will to make the effort to make things better uh, for the future is, I mean, that's about the most uplifting thing I can think of. Yeah, absolutely. So as if people listen to this and they feel moved to make changes, um, what would you say would be some of the things that people could begin doing? Is it activism, like finding what's going on in their area, voting, um, any other sorts of things that you can think of? Yeah, activism with on, only with things I agree with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're back, we're back to benign dictatorship. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, in in all realism, I, like people always talk about, oh, get involved, make a difference, and those things, I think, you know, for me, felt kind of like these empty platitudes um, until. Uh, this whole loss of my fishery and the process of making this film and seeing the impact on my kids, um, you know, and to me, I mean, it, you know, this probably sounds like I'm shilling for, for the company, but a lot of that have been lessons learned and trickled down through the Patagonia family that, you know, Patagonia has a, a policy that if you're an employee and you're arrested in an environmental protest, they'll pay your legal fees. Um, and so there's a real emphasis on activism and act advocacy there. And, and a lot of what I do and how I feel, I learned from the company and from the Chenards, from Yvonne and Melinda themselves. And so, you know, I feel like it's not really an empty platitude. I don't know how to put it in another way other than that. If we don't protest, if we don't advocate, um, things will, like you say, stay in the fixed brain or fixed mind status quo, which in a lot of cases, sucks, you know? Yeah. And so we may not win them all, but if we don't try, it gets increasingly hard to sleep at night. Um, and, and that's, I think, the, the successes are really important, but the trying is just as important because, you know, as human beings, we have a huge impact on the world around us, and, and we're a society that... that has caused a lot of damage. And I think we're a society that has the power to fix things too. Absolutely. Um, well, as we close up here, uh, we like to ask all of our guests a question at the end. And that question is, what is one thing you would ask of your fellow human beings? Holy smokes. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're keeping it light here. Send me money. <laughs> hey, there's my request. Uh, you can post my ad. <laughs> I, you know, I think, I think my request 
of my fellow human beings is to spend some time thinking about what's happening in the world and what they can do to make it better. Um, you know, that's kind of a two-part answer, I suppose. But I, I think, you know, awareness is, is the first step. And then the second step is some kind of action. And, you know, and, and the action can be anything from, from joining a, a nonprofit group and supporting them as a member, or it can be uh, donations. You can write a check. Um, you can spend time on the ground, whether it's, you know, r- removing barriers to fish passage or cleaning out invasive species or any of those things. Or, you know, it doesn't even have to be environmental. It can be feeding the homeless people on Thanksgiving. It can It can be a lot of things, but I feel like you know, we get, myself included, get so wrapped up in our own personal day-to-day chaos that, um, you know, if for nothing else, when you participate in some kind of activism, um, it feels good. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. Thanks, Dylan.